Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now it's time to talk about poverty in America. We have a lot of experts on what to do about it, academics and policymakers, but Mia Birdsong has a new way of approaching that. She's a senior fellow of the Economic Security Project. She was founding co-director of Family Story and vice president of the Family Independence Initiative. And she's widely known for her TED conversation with the founders of Black Lives Matter. Her TED talk, The Story We Tell About Poverty Isn't True, has been viewed almost two million times. And now she has a new four-part podcast at The Nation. It's called More Than Enough, and it starts this week. Mia Birdsong, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Well, when it comes to understanding poverty in America, you think there's one group of experts who have not really been consulted. Who are they? Um, People who are poor. (laughs) And I'll say it's very obvious, right? Yeah. I don't actually think that there's any group of people who are so often left out of the conversations happening about the solutions for them. And it really isn't just about policymakers or academics or nonprofit organizations designing something and then saying, what do you think of this thing we've already created? It really is about asking people what should be created in the first place. It's about listening to people when they tell you what their lives are like. And it's also about recognizing that there is leadership and innovation happening in poor families and communities. And if we really care about economic justice, we actually should be resourcing those innovations and following that leadership. And your podcast includes audio that you've recorded of your conversations with many poor people across the country. Tell us about some of those conversations. I'm going to give you a little context. So I kind of was invited into um, a conversation about guaranteed income and was super excited about that and also noticed that there weren't poor people who are, or even really people who are advocating um, on behalf of poor folks in, in this conversation. If we look at the national conversation, it really has been policymakers, academics, and like, you know, Elon Musk um, <laughs> yes. and people freaking out about like robots, right? So I started what I really hope is just like the beginning of inviting folks who would actually benefit from guaranteed income into the conversation. So I went across the country, I visited six cities and I held workshops and I just asked people like, you know, kind of what role money played in their lives, like what it felt like to not have enough of it, what it would be like if they didn't have to worry about it anymore. I talked about guaranteed income and just like asked people what what they thought of the idea and how their lives would change if that was a reality. And let me say, first of all, like resounding yes from people <laughs> about the idea of guaranteed income, but also like folks totally get that there's no silver bullet when it comes to addressing economic injustice. So people were not like 
let's get rid of everything else and have guaranteed income. They were like, this sounds like a good idea in addition to like fixing a lot of the structures we already have, the systems we already have that are meant to support poor people. I mean, the conversations were amazing. It was really easy for people to imagine what their lives would be like um, if they didn't have to worry about money. People talked about the stuff that like anybody would talk about. They talked about saving for, you know, their kids' school. They talked about going back to school themselves. They talked about paying off debt. They talked about working less so they could spend more time with their kids or like taking care of their aging parents. They talked about saving for homes. They talked about buying cars, starting businesses, like all those things. Um, And they definitely talked about creating more space for like enjoyment in their lives. So I remember there was a woman in Jackson who Jackson, Mississippi, who said that she would go on vacation for the first time in 10 years. And what that meant was that she wanted to like drive with her kids two states over to Georgia to visit family that her children had never met. There was a mom in LA who said she would pay the legal fees that were necessary to help her parents move from Mexico to the United States. There was a young man in San Francisco who said he has sisters and nieces and nephews, and he would want to help his sisters out with like diapers and clothes um, for his nieces and nephews. So really like regular things that people really, really struggle with when they don't have enough money. My Republican relatives say people are poor because they made, quote, bad choices. And if you just give them money, they will make more bad choices about how to spend it. What do the poor people that you talk to say about that? Did, did any of them talk about deservedness or bad choices? So let me say first, it's not just Republicans that think that people are poor because of their own actions and behaviors. Liberals are just nicer about it. (laughs) But to answer the question, like, no community is a monolith. And all of us are kind of swimming in the same culture that promotes this kind of personal responsibility narrative that says we alone are in control of their destinies. So I definitely heard some folks say that they or people they knew had made bad choices. But for the most part... The folks I talked to totally understood that the system is rigged and that all of the quote unquote good choices that they made are not a match for an economy that funnels opportunity, investment, education, and any number of resources to the people who already have it. And that kind of personal responsibility narrative, I think, is one of the most profound obstacles we have when it comes to actually addressing economic injustice in our country because we think that people are poor because they don't work hard enough and we don't think they deserve to have things that are actually, you know, fundamental human rights. You mentioned Elon Musk. There's some other tech billionaires, including Mark Zuckerberg, who have talked about universal basic income being a good idea. On first glance, it seems like, well, that is a good thing that the super rich want to help poor people. But how do you feel about their role in this conversation? Sure. I mean, anybody who says that guaranteed income is a good idea, like, I want to appreciate that. I think that this is one of those instances where the devil is in the details. Like, Mm. if they're talking about having guaranteed income, but eliminating food stamps and housing vouchers and any other social supports we have, then like, no, that's not that's not cool. I think that if people, people are serious about supporting guaranteed income, then they, one, have to recognize that, you know, being a billionaire is actually immoral. And um, they should spend their money advocating for a massive tax hike on the wealthy to fund things like guaranteed income, but also like childcare and health care and education and housing. 
I learned from your new podcast that guaranteed basic income is not a new idea. It's something black activists were talking about, especially in the 60s, including the Panthers, the welfare rights movement, and Dr. King in the mid-60s. In a state of society where want is abolished, the dignity of the individual will flourish when the decisions concerning his life are in his own hands, when he has the assurance that his income is stable and certain, when the unjust measurement of human worth on a scale of dollars is eliminated. Now our country can do this. John Kenneth Galbraith said that a guaranteed annual income could be done for about $20 billion a year. And I say to you today that if our nation can spend $35 billion a year to fight an unjust evil war in Vietnam and $20 billion to put a man on the moon, it can spend billions of dollars to put God's children on their own two feet right here on earth. When and where did you first hear about this, and and what did you think about it? When I first heard about it, I was in college. It was the 90s, and um, it was because we were studying King's um, economic justice work. I totally thought it was ridiculous, the idea that the government was going to give us free money. And largely, it's because I held this idea that like hard work equals success. And I had internalized this idea that, that my own success, you know, I grew up in a poor neighborhood, I'm black, I'm female. And I had, I had been told, right, that my own success was because I had worked really hard. But really, and this was like a little bit of a blow to my ego, right? Like lots of people work hard. Um, mm-hmm. And I now understand that I'm actually an exception And I think we point to lots of exceptions. You know, I think we can point to Barack Obama or Oprah. We love like these stories of rags to riches or people who kind of overcame obstacles and made it, right? That's like so much part of our American dream narrative. But those people, myself included, are exceptions. And mostly we're exceptions because we're lucky. And that doesn't mean that I'm not amazing and wonderful, but it does mean that my success isn't solely because of my hard work. And I think part of how that narrative transforms to, you know, what your Republican friends think is that we think, well, the people who make it are the people who have worked hard. And if I, I made it because I worked hard, right? We don't see kind of some of the invisible supports and privileges that exist that actually allow us to be successful in a, in a context in which most people are not successful, honestly. So the, the underlying assumption there is that people who haven't made it, like, didn't work hard. So I really believe that, right? I mean, I wouldn't have said, like, poor people are lazy. Like, I grew up in a neighborhood where I saw people working really hard every day. But the idea of free money just, like, just went against this thing that I'd been, you know, socialized to believe. Then I changed my mind. (laughs) Changing your mind, of course, is something a lot of people never do. Tell us about how those changes happened. The place that I heard about guaranteed income was in a black studies class when I was in college, um, taught by this amazing professor, Adrian Lash Jones. This is at Oberlin. And it was my political education. It's where I began to understand that there really are these deeply entrenched, expansive systems of oppression 
that we're all living in and responding to and trying to navigate around. So I, I was like, oh, like, these, are, these are the things that are actually at play here. Like our economy is set up in a way, you know, and it, and it is coupled with um, patriarchy and white supremacy. Like it's set up in a way that makes it very difficult if you start, you know, if you don't already, if you're not already a like wealthy white man when you're born, like if you don't, if you start in a, in a different place, like it's going to be very hard for you to get anywhere else. So once I recognized that, I realized that, what I'd, what I'd been taught growing up was not true. I definitely think policy is super important, but I also think there, for me, um, what I'm drawn to really is people's stories. Um, and I think our, the stories are the things that really bring, you know, our human experience to life. They're the things that outside of our actual relationships with people that we know are how we understand and kind of extend our sense of generosity and love, really, to other people. You suggest that when we join this conversation about guaranteed income, we're not just helping the poor. We're also helping ourselves. Helping ourselves do what? So as my friend Eric Liu says, we're all better off when we're all better off. And I think that is true in lots of ways. There's a whole economic argument to be made for um, why it's important for everybody to be able to um, have the things they need to live a good life. We're spending a bunch of money in these kind of backward, um, inefficient, um, and insufficient ways in order to address the problems we have because we're not actually investing in people on the front end and we're not actually distributing um, wealth, right? The wealth that people are helping to create, they're not actually getting. So I think that there's that piece that like when we're not, when we don't have some such tremendous economic um, inequality, it's actually better for all of us economically. Um, but I also think um, that when our neighbors and coworkers and community members um, are doing well, um, there is there's less of a sense of scarcity that we have. And I think there's a way in which when we feel like um, there's not enough to go around, um, there's something that that does to us psychically as human beings, right? We, we, are, we live in a context where our um, doing well means that other people aren't. Um, and I think that like, that's not, that doesn't feel good for us as people. Um, I know for me, my life would be like deeply enriched if I could walk around and, um, know that all of my neighbors were living in, in, in living in sufficient housing. If I knew that the children in my neighborhood, um, and the neighborhoods around me were receiving, you know, a well-funded education. If I knew that the families that are, um, you know, on my block or around the corner were not having to worry about, you know, whether or not they could pay heat bills or whether or not they could put gas in their car to get to work. Um, knowing that other people are doing well, like gives me a sense of security. And when other people aren't doing well, we start to, those of us who like are, we start to feel like what we have is under threat. You talked about decoupling deservedness from work. How do we do that? So I don't know how we do that, but I'm going to tell you what it means. <laughs> um, so, you know, as I was saying, like, we really have this idea about hard work um, equals success. And part of that is really this idea that doing that we, we believe that like paid labor is moral. The Insight Center, um, which is based in Oakland, did some really amazing research on how, how Americans think about the economy. And what they found is that like Americans, and this is across 
race and gender and class, Americans believe that paid work confers personhood, like that you're not really a whole person if you do not have a job. There's this way in which we've decided that like work is what makes you a whole person. But if we really believe that like human rights, like food, housing, access to education and healthcare are rights, then nobody has to do anything to prove they deserve them, right? Human rights are things that you don't have to earn and they're not things that you can unearn. So I think part of the message that I want people to understand is that like people who are poor work really hard, but that's not even the point. If you are 40 years old and you spend your days smoking like cannabis in your mother's basement, like you still deserve to have food and shelter and access to education and healthcare. Like all of the things, all the stereotypes we have about people who don't work hard, even if those things were true, those people still deserve basic human rights. Mia Birdsong, her new podcast, More Than Enough, is amazing and wonderful. And it's live now at thenation.com, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mia, thanks for everything you do, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thank you.